This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Please be sure to subscribe and share with friends and family. To help support this ministry, please visit allentempleamec.com slash donate. Thank you for listening. The text that was read came from Philemon, the first chapter, and the 10th through the 17th verses. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything, so that your goodness would not be, in effect, by compulsion, but of your own free will. For perhaps he was, for this reason, separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. Back in the 15th century, in a tiny village near Nuremberg, there lived a family with 18 children. In order to keep food on the table for this very large household, the father, who was a goldsmith by profession, worked almost 18 hours a day and doing whatever odd jobs he could find just to make ends meet for his family. Despite their seemingly hopeless condition, two of the children, Albrecht and Albert Durer, had a dream. They both wanted to pursue their talent for art, but they knew full well that their father would never be able to financially support their dreams of going to the academy in Nuremberg. After many long discussions at night in their crowded bed, the two boys finally worked out a plan. They would toss a coin and the loser would go down to the nearby mines and with his earnings support his brother while he attended the academy. Then when that brother finished the academy, he would either make money off of his artwork and if that didn't work, he would then go down into the mines himself so that his brother could go to the academy. Laboring in these mines were difficult, but they were willing to do whatever it was required to let their dreams come true. They tossed the coin one Sunday after church and Albrecht won the toss and went off to Nuremberg. Albert went down to the dangerous mines and for the next four years, he financed his brothers who was, war, who was going to school at the academy almost without problems. Albrecht's etchings and his 
woodcuts and his oils were far better than even his professors, that they said, this is an amazing artist. And by the time he graduated, he was already earning a considerable amount of fees for his work. When the young artist returned to his village, the Dewar family held a phenomenal feast, a dinner to celebrate Albrecht's triumphant homecoming. After the long meal and they were, that was punctuated with music and laughter, Albrecht rose from his position of honor at the head of the table to drink a toast to his beloved brother for the four years of sacrifice that enabled him to fulfill his own ambitions. His closing words were, and I quote, And now, Albert, blessed brother of mine, now it is your turn. Now you can go to Nuremberg to pursue your dream and I will take care of you. All heads turned in eager expectation to now the far end of the table where Albert sat, tears streaming down his face, shaking his lowered head from side to side while he sobbed over and over, no, 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 no. Finally, Albert rose to his feet, wiped the tears from his cheeks. He glanced down at the long table of faces of the people that he loved, holding his hands close to his cheek. He said softly, No, brother, I cannot go to Nuremberg. It is too late for me. Look what four years in the mines have done to my hands. The bones in every finger have been smashed at least once. And lately, I've been suffering from arthritis so badly in my right hand that I cannot even hold a glass of water to return your toast, much less make delicate lines on parchment or canvas with a pen or a brush. No, brother, for me, it is too late. More than 450 years have passed since that moment. Albrecht Durer's hundreds of masterful portraits, pen and silver point sketches, watercolors, charcoals, copper engravings hang in almost every museum in the world. But the odds are great that you probably are not familiar with any of his works except for one. Probably you have a reproduction of his work even in your home and I will tell you you probably don't pay too much attention to it. But you see one day to pay homage to Albert for all that he had sacrificed his brother Albrecht Durer painstakingly drew his brother's abused hands with palms together and thin fingers stretched skyward. He called his powerful drawing simply hands. But the entire world almost immediately opened up their hearts to this great masterpiece and we all know it to be the praying hands. I actually drew it myself and gave it away to someone that needed encouragement the praying hands. Many of you have seen this. Many of you are familiar with it. But now you know the story behind it. 
and what they, what it represents. But the thing that I love most about this story is that while it emphasizes the point that no one ever makes it alone or without another person's help, it also shows the singular choice that someone can make to selflessly serve someone else. Sometimes people make tremendous personal sacrifices and are willing to risk their own ambitions and reputations for the benefit of someone else. Sometimes people choose to be what is the title for today's sermon, the bond servant. The bond servant. Let us pray. Eternal God, our Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, I am but your bond servant. Now, Lord, even in the midst of my own struggle, my own pain, as I can even feel it right now, preach to the preacher. Let me preach now, Lord, like I've never preached before. A message that your people will hear even in the midst of suffering. Bless this time now, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. It is not a natural thing for people to willingly give up their own desires and needs for the benefit of someone else. It is not a natural thing. To be quite frank, while many people make tremendous personal sacrifices every day for others, it is usually done with some kind of an ulterior motive or even some kind of an agenda. Not to indict anyone, I'm just simply saying that our human nature is of such that very often the tendency to want to do for someone else doesn't come that easily, particularly if it's going to cost you something. The issue of self-sacrifice is a concept that is sorely lost on our present generation because we live in a society that is governed by extreme individualism and an overly warped sense of entitlement. To prove this point, take a real listen to any commercial on television and you will quickly hear statements like, get the help you deserve. Or treat yourself to a new car, you deserve it. In other words, we are brainwashed into believing that we are entitled to having whatever we want simply because we deserve it. Favors are a thing of the past because no one does anything anymore simply because they believe it to be something good to do or even without getting paid for it. I get a kick out of going to places like Dunkin' Donuts and Subways, and I'm telling my truth, when you get to the cashier, there's a little cup that says tips, and, and I can't even imagine what the tip is for. You see, there was a time when tips were for someone that went above and beyond what was expected of them, and to show your gratitude, you would tip them. Now, people want tips just for doing the job that they were paid and hired to do, just for doing the job. So everyone feels entitled and there is no longer this sense of self-sacrifice. Look all around our society. If you're not going to give me something for what it is that you want from me, then there's no part of me that believes I should do it for you. Self-sacrifice is a thing of the past. Sad to say. Our text 
today is an excerpt of a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a Roman citizen by the name of Philemon, who was most likely the head of the Colossian church that met in his house. The purpose of the letter was to plead for mercy on behalf of a slave by the name of Onesimus, who may have in some way offended his master and had run away. Based on Roman custom, Onesimus could look forward to very harsh punishment should he ever be returned to his master. I hope you're seeing the picture. Paul is writing now this letter to this Roman ruler, if you will. Now before I go too far, many of you will be asking yourself, is the Bible condoning the practice of slavery? How on earth could the Apostle Paul be pleading with a master to receive his slave? Is this not in some way advocating slavery? The letter has been the subject, brothers and sisters, of many debates over the centuries, and it is often cited as one of the great contradictions in the Bible regarding the promotion of slavery, and we all can agree that that is an injustice because it robs the dignity of our fellow human beings. We are clear on that. Now, this sermon is not going to try, I'm not going to try to defend the Bible's position on this issue, but I do find it necessary to explain some of the background of this letter so that we can properly understand the context of what we are to take from Paul's letter to Philemon. There are two things we need to look at when we are analyzing the text. First, the social condition of the Roman Empire at the time, and secondly, the social classes at the time. Two very important things, right? The, 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 the social condition in Rome at the time, but also social classes at the time. Let's start, start with the social condition. Rome was a war-torn empire at the time of the letter. There were large groups of soldiers that were returning to Rome. The majority of the population was made up of slaves. The majority of the people at that time were slaves. And only few people, few people were masters or employers. If you worked in Rome, it was a sign of slavery. If you were idle in Rome, it was a sign of privilege. I want you to hear what I just said. If you had a job... In Rome, you were a slave. If you were idle in Rome, it was a sign of privilege. Now, that's the social condition. In terms of the social classes, you either owned or you are an owner. It did not matter if you were highly educated or not. Slaves were the lowest socially, but not necessarily the lowest culturally or even educationally. You could be highly edu educated, really smart, and still be a slave just because you work for someone else. You got to understand the terminology. Many slaves were paid wages. Some even owned slaves themselves, and many purchased their freedoms from their owners. In fact, large numbers of people would sell themselves into slavery just to be able to pay off debts for a certain time. In other words, I'm going to give you the benefit of my servitude for a specific period of time because of the debt that I owe. So I am purposely willing myself to be a slave, knowing that at some point when the debt is paid, I may be free to go own a slave. I hope you're understanding the context. So, so most free persons 
were peasants working as farmers so that a household slave had, much, had a much better chance of getting educated and moving up the economic ladder. That's how it was socially in Rome. To make the point clearer, if you have a job right now, any of you watching me or listening to me, if you have a job right now and you were living in the Roman Empire at that time, you would be considered a slave. Even if you were a doctor or a lawyer, you would be considered a slave simply because you worked for someone else. So when we see the term slave in the Bible, particularly how it's being used in this context, get it out of your mind that what we're talking about here is chattel slavery. That's not the way to understand slave the way Paul wrote it and the way it is meant. I hope that that is clear. So truth be told, if you work for some corporation, many of you, you probably even really feel like a slave. <laughs> I know I used to feel that way when I was in corporate America. So when the Bible again talks about slaves, it is not to be understood the way you understand slavery in the deep south in the early years of the United States. It is to be understood in the context of the political and economic power structures and how the society as a whole operated. So contextually speaking, as Paul writes this letter now to Philemon, there is clear evidence that there is a social distinction between slave and free, rich and poor, race and gender. We were, they were all regarded as irrelevant, hear me church, in God's sight as it pertains to the advancement of the gospel. You see, we know that, and, and again, to be clear, church, if you don't understand this, then you will think that the Bible is condoning something that it's really not condoning. Let me be again clear. The Bible and the way God deals with us, he is no respecter of person. So whether you are born free, born slave, you are a master, you own, whatever it is, God does not respect any social class. God is still God, and his word can still bring life and deliverance to you, no matter what you may consider yourself in society today. I hope you're hearing me, church. The Bible is less concerned with social, with changing the social conditions of a society. Hence, we are told to do what? Pray for our leaders. Isn't that what the Bible tells us? Pray for your leaders and those who have authority over you. But the Bible is not concerned with you praying for those people to change the society. It's just so you might have peace in your home. What the Bible is concerned about is transforming people from the inside, irrespective of their social condition. We live in a cruel, dangerous world, a mean world, where people are looking out for themselves, where the spirit of entitlement is so pervasive, where individualism has become so much of a stronghold in our lives that the truth of the matter is we are praying to God, many of us, just to make our lives better so that other people can suffer and not us. That's mostly what money, many of us pray for. Lord, bless me today. Bless me, Lord, so that I can be what? The head and not the tail. Isn't that what we pray? Meanwhile, God is saying to us, whether you're the head or the tail, do you know me? And are you ready to walk in to the sufferings of me? That I may know him and the fellowship of his suffering. What are we willing to give? 
What are we willing to sacrifice for this thing called the gospel? Sunday after Sunday, preachers preach left and right, trying to get you to understand that there is more to life than you getting a new car or a new house or a new blessing. And we have profaned the pulpit by making it a place where you believe that your prosperity will come from. Maybe God is talking about a different kind of prosperity where even in the midst of a raging storm, God can still say, peace be still. Even in the midst of a raging suffering, God can still send the right people to, to alleviate your suffering. Maybe God can look at us and with compassion and say, be strong, my son. I'll never leave you and I will never forsake you. Maybe that's what God is trying to get us to know, but we are too concerned with the size of our bank accounts. In Paul's most personal letter, a letter to Philemon, he offers the most direct discussion of slavery in the New Testament. When the runaway slave Onesimus became a Christian, Paul sent this letter with him to return to his master. Paul now writes a letter that he's giving to to, to Onesimus and say, take this letter with you to Philemon. Because guess what? Philemon is a Christian and so too are you, Onesimus. And Paul wrote, for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while. That you might have him back forever. No longer as a bond servant, but more than a bond servant, as a beloved brother. Especially to me, but how much more to you? both in the flesh and in the Lord. Paul is saying, maybe the slave who ran away did that just so he could find me and be given the opportunity to be converted to the faith so that now he as a fellow Christian can now come to you and be more to you as a brother. Here is the, here is the subtlety in the text, church. Maybe Philemon had been praying to God for something. And I'm using my sanctified imagination as the Holy Spirit gives me utterance. Maybe Philemon had been praying for something, but it had not been happening in his life. Maybe so Onesimus runs away. But when Onesimus comes back as a Christian, where two or more are gathered in his name, the presence of God is. Maybe... Maybe Philemon's prayer and the answer to his prayer lied in him coming to agreement with Onesimus, his slave. I don't know. I'm making this up. But what I'm trying to help you understand that God's ways are not our ways. Neither are his thoughts our thoughts. And I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, that when God starts to work in your lives, the way that he's going to bring the blessings that you are asking for might not look the way that you expected it. Do you have the faith to still believe? Paul clearly noted that the bondservant and his owner were now brothers and of equal status before God, no matter what the society says. And furthermore, Paul told Philemon to what? Receive him as you would receive me. How would Philemon be expected to receive Paul? If Paul was the bishop, how would Philemon re receive Paul as a fellow believer treated with respect? But before I get, you know, let me get to the meat of this matter. I want us to understand 
the difference between a slave, the way that we have understood it so far in the context of Rome, and a bond slave, or a bond servant, as I prefer to call it. During the time of Jesus, human servitude were of two kinds. They were either bond or you were free. People in service were either slaves who were owned outright by their masters or they were free people who worked temporarily for meager wages. In fact, because of slavery, the, the worth and the dignity of a human being was much less esteemed than it was in a free society. Hear me, church. After all, if people could be bought and sold, their value was no different from that of cattle or furniture. If the slave served his owner well and the two became attached to each other, the master often offered to set the slave free. The slave could then choose to either go free or get this or become a bond servant. <laughs> of his own free will, he could choose to remain for the rest of his life as a servant who, because of his love for the master, chose to remain in his family. Now, I don't know if you got it. When the master loves the slave. He decides to set the slave free. You can go. You are free. But the slave decides in his heart and in his mind that I love my master so much that I don't want to be free. I want to remain as a bond servant to my master. Now, I don't know if you're hearing this clearly, but I'm saying something. <laughs> now, there's another level of this. Anybody could say, yeah, I love my master and it's really good in this house and I want to be a bond servant. But there was another step that required that you put your money where your mouth is. There was another step that required that if you decide that you are going to be a bond servant, you had to demonstrate that some way. You, you didn't just go and say, I want to be a bond servant. And then your master's going to be like, welcome to the family. Oh, no. You, you, you're going to have to take it another step. And so to confirm this, the owner would then take the slave to the doorpost of his home. To a wooden doorpost of his home. Placing the slave's earlobe against the doorpost. He would then pierce the lobe with a tool called an awl, pinning it temporarily to the post. An awl is a sharp device that when you put your ear to the post and you stabbed it, you put the, this device in the ear on the post and it drew blood. The awl is this pointy object that drew blood. Are you hearing what I'm saying? When it was pierced into the post. <laughs> this act indicated that a bond was now sealed for life. And that, and that this slave had in fact become a love servant for the remainder 
of his days. He would never leave or forsake that family. He would be faithful forever to his owner. He was part of that household. Their life was his and his life was theirs. That's the bond slave. But in contrast, I like to draw a distinction between the bond slave and the bond servant. You see, semantically, they mean the same thing. But I personally choose the distinction, a bond servant. You see, in many New Testament books, the word bond servant was used in reference to a person's commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. Most of Paul's letters began by him referring to himself as what? Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. James and Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, both refer to themselves as what? Christ's bond servants. The apostle Peter called himself a servant. Brothers and sisters, what I'm trying to get you to hear <laughs> is that the importance of, of these New Testament authors referring to themselves as bond servants should not be overlooked. Despite proclaiming a message of freedom from sin in Jesus Christ, these writers were dedicated to Jesus as their master. Further, their service to the Lord was not one that they could consider leaving. Just as a bond slave was more than an employee who could leave for another job. These Christians were bond servants who could never leave their master for another. This belief and understanding of the Christian as a bond servant played an enormous role as early Christians often faced persecution. Peter, Paul, and James, we all know traditionally have been recorded as dying for their allegiance to Jesus Christ. But, but let's finally look again at Paul's letter, because I want to make sure that out of everything that I've said, that now when you read Paul's letter and you understand the context of a bond servant, listen again to Paul's letter with now your spiritual ears. Verse 10, I appeal to you now for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and me. I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Then, if you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. Do you see Jesus? Do you see Jesus in the text? Uh, no, look, number one, Paul is in prison. 
Jesus was in the prison of humanity. Paul, Paul called Onesimus my begotten. Begotten means someone to whom all truth is revealed. Jesus is the begotten son. Onesimus was useless. We are useless. Onesimus is now useful since being begotten. We are now useful through grace. Paul intercedes to the master for Onesimus. Jesus intercedes to the Father for us. Paul says, accept Onesimus as you would me. Jesus says, accept us for he has overcome the world. This is the point of the letter, church. You and I, we are Onesimus. We ran away from our master because we were slaves to sin. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. But thanks be to God that like Onesimus, we can take refuge in Christ. And he fills our heart with his truth when we become his begotten by faith. So now that we have been begotten as of our Lord, Jesus makes intercession for you and for me as he advocates to the Father on our behalf and we no longer need to live that way. Paul says, if then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Jesus paid it all at Calvary. When the all of the cross pierced his body, he became the ultimate bond servant of your and on your and my behalf. His beaten and bloodied body was just like Albrecht Durer's hands. Outwardly destroyed in service, yet giving his brother Albert the power to achieve his full potential. Jesus' crucified body gave you and me the opportunity to receive all that grace has to offer. And because Jesus did this, you and I can be assured that in the same way that Philemon accepted Onesimus, you and I are accepted by our Heavenly Father. O oh, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? The answer, quite simply, is Jesus. Jesus paid it all, and all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. Are you ready to be made free to serve Jesus Christ today and forever? He paid it all, and he's looking for a few bond servants to advance his kingdom today.
I pray that you will be willing to join him in Jesus' name. May the Lord richly, richly bless you, my beloved.